Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. You can find the Katie Halper Show on iTunes where you can rate and review us. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Patreon. And make sure you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Because there you will find extended interviews and bonus interviews. On today's show, I'm giving you a free bonus episode. I'm playing some more interviews that I did at the Sanders Institute gathering in Burlington, Vermont. First, I speak to Roseanne DeMauro, the former executive director of National Nurses United and of the California Nurses Association National Nurses Organizing Committee. She's a lifelong activist. She talks to me about the ageism against Bernie Sanders, and Roseanne never holds back. Make sure that you listen to another bonus episode that I did with her and Naomi Klein, where Roseanne and I talk over drinks about the, quote, duplicitous, horrendous, calculated lies, end quote, against Sanders supporters and the accusations against us as Bernie bros. Then I speak to Abdul El-Sayed, who ran for governor in Michigan. He is a physician, and he was Detroit's health commissioner from 2015 to 2017. And he is an activist around public health and the Green New Deal. And then I speak to Maria Swart, who is the National Director of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA. Thank you so much, Roseanne, for uh, speaking to me. Uh, Thank you so much. We met, uh, well, we saw each other most recently at the Sanders Institute. And um, I just wanted to talk to you about what your thoughts are at post-Institute gathering and looking forward to 2020. Uh, well, obviously, we're all jazzed um, coming off the Sanders Institute. It was a, an enormous high. I mean, it's a gathering space for, you know, a lot of progressive minds. I know that uh, I'm, I know that Jane and Bernie wished that all of us everywhere throughout the country or throughout the, the, the globe actually could have attended that. Um, but it was it was really it was inspired. I mean, the the exchange, the, the exchange that happened that wasn't even um it, that that wasn't obvious that was behind the scenes was actually part of the best thing about the Sanders Institute because everyone connected, you know, new relationships were formed, ideas were, you know, people didn't agree necessarily on all policies, but there was a really great exchange on ideas. And it was just, I mean, I, I think, again, I think it was inspired. I, I love the weekend. It was one of the few, it was one of the few conferences that I've gone to that I I wasn't ready to leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it felt like so, there was a real community or camaraderie or, right. um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, so, and, and then also I think people recognize, like, what, I mean, first of all, Jane Sanders. I mean, authentic, beautiful, yeah. kind, all of those things. And I think, you know, for me, I sat there kind of thinking, I can't even imagine, I can't even allow myself almost to imagine a world in which a Jane Sanders could be the first lady yeah. of this country. I mean, that's, you know, it kind of gave me chills to think about because she's such, you know, she cares about policy deeply, kind of like an Eleanor Roosevelt, I think I said that to you, yeah. uh, type of player potentially in the in the White House, but someone who actually cares about what happens to, to people in this country. And so then I think, you know, we all came off of that and we were all, you know, inspired to take it further and, and further in some ways is, you know, from policy to politics, right? And that is, you know, draft Bernie. Yeah. We did this. Um, we did this in 2016. We, um, you know, we we had a well, actually in 20, I don't know, it was 24, 2015, I think it was. Um, well, maybe 2014. I don't know. <laughs> Way back when, um, we had a draft Bernie campaign. I don't know if you remember that. And so it was prior to him stepping into the, um, you know, into the race for the presidency. And we had a grassroots movement to draft Bernie, and it was tremendously successful. And this was before, you know, Bernie had the type of name recognition or the, uh, you know, can, political standing that he certainly does enjoy now. But we did a lot, a phenomenal amount of grassroots work to convince Bernie to run for president in 20, for 2016. And um, and this this reminds me in some ways of that, but we're in a very, a very, very different dynamic now. There's no one who doesn't know who Bernie Sanders is. Right. And what he, re- and what he represents. Yeah. Um, and ha- by the way, how did you first meet um, Bernie and Jane Sanders? 
You know, I met Bernie um, and Jane. Well, I met Bernie first. Mm-hmm. I met Bernie when we were, did uh, a single pair work when he was in, I think he was in the Senate at that point. I supported Bernie's president. I, I supported Bernie's run for mayor back in 1980, believe it or not, Katie. Wow. Um, yeah. I was and, born. Yeah. I, 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 I know. It's like, and, but I didn't know Bernie at point in time yeah. i just knew him by reputation um from magazines because it wasn't the internet right. that it is now but um i it, so we did this we did work on single payer many many years ago in the senate we introduced senate bill for C- single payer and we worked together on single payer when i was um running the nurses union and it was uh you know i mean he was exactly the same person he is now exactly the same and his passions were the right. same I, that's what you know, at at the end of the day, you know that, you know this this is the person who's been consistent for forty years and has has been unwavering, and it's it's phenomenal. His his commitments are are there. But so this time, the draft Bernie is coming from um, you know some former staffs posted the site, but basically we're all in, um, and it's basically to say to him, you know. He, he he's not. This isn't somebody who wants to run for president to get name recognition. Right. This isn't someone who's running for president to try to be important. This is someone who would be, could be running for president to actually change the policies that affect the most vulnerable. And and all of us in America to basically instill America with a set of values that takes care of its own people and make sure that we're not in international wars that will ultimately kill us, (laughs) for lack of a better, a more delicate way to say that. But so it's true. I, yeah. I think that there's a sense, and I, I told you this the other night when we were talking, there's a sense of urgency yeah. at this moment in history. And so, yeah, so our draft Bernie, our new draft Bernie campaign is everyone has to tell him. If you love him, tell him. Yeah. We love you, Bernie. <laughs> this is the official uh, official line of the Katie Helper Show. But, yeah, we'll share that also. Um, yes. And you tweeted where that is. And so people can just go to um, organizing for Bernie dot com organize organizing organizing right. for Bernie dot com organizing yeah. for Bernie dot com. And yeah, right. ING because it's it's action. People are already doing it. Um, right. And what about you? You posted today. I saw on your Twitter feed, which is great. Um, you tw- posted an image that says say no to ageism. What is that about? Well, I think it's a national disgrace that people are so horrendously uh, that that they discount the intelligence and the wisdom of someone who's older. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so what they're using is a is a narrative, and it's against Biden too. I mean, so this isn't peculiar to Bernie, but right. they're using this this narrative that you know if you if you have experience somehow you're not welcome in the presidency when in fact it is precisely what we need nelson mandela became president of africa south africa when he was uh, 80 i mean so no one at see this is this is such a shallow narrative and it's okay what's what's bad in america is that it's okay to be ageist it's not okay any longer to denigrate people on the basis of race or gender right. but on age you can completely denigrate people and it's like a laugh line. It's not a laugh line. First of all, it's, you know, there's, there's, a, let's just talk about older people for a second here. You know, there's, a, we all age differently mm-hmm. and, you know, some of us die at 50 in our fifties and some of us die in our seventies. Some of us die at a hundred, but it's all relative to kind of the human organism. So every individual, every physical individual is different. I've been with Bernie uh, an awful lot of times running through airports and I, I find it difficult to keep up with right. him. I mean, he is, he's a massive, he was a cross country runner. Right. And I think that, you know, that's, that's who he is and he has that endurance, but he also more importantly has that wisdom. So I, I think that, you know, using um, that as a club, but I don't think it's just, I don't think it's just about Bernie. I think our country is shallow yeah. and I think it doesn't take care of people you know, it doesn't respect people as much when you know they're over 60 even. I mean, women are shut out of the workforce. Women who, I mean, people who have a phenomenal amount to contribute are shut out of the workforce based upon age. That's outrageous. And so, and that narrative spills over now when we're talking about someone who has the most wisdom, the most experience to run for president of the United States, that right. we, we condescend about it. And that condescension, 
is what's really got me angry this morning, I have to tell you, Katie. Yeah. Was there something in particular that you saw, or is it just a general? You know, yeah, Jimmy Kimmel did this, you know, shtick, you know, saying Beto's a baby and Joe Biden and Bernie are old. And I thought, you know what, How, you, sh- you shallow. What, what yeah. a shallow. I mean, really, you need that for a laugh line. Well, according to a new Harvard-Harris poll, the top choices right now are Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Beto O'Rourke, two old men and a baby. Jimmy Kimmel, I mean, go get a different job if that's a yeah. laugh line to you. You don't get to be ageist. I mean, why is his network not holding him accountable yeah, for true. that? If he was on there talking about someone based upon race or gender, it, it would be it would be off. I mean, it would be so off limit. He would be, you know, it would be questionable if he could maintain right. his job. Yet he can rail on ageism like people are second class citizens yeah. or third class citizens because they're older that's disgraceful yeah. that's not funny that's not a laugh line and he shouldn't enjoy that space to be able to do yeah, that yeah it's true there'd, at least there'd be like a petition calling on him to apologize right if we were he should apologize yeah. it was inane and you know one of these days you know I, should he be a comedian how old is he yeah, I mean, right. he might be dated for a comedian yeah he still be laid out to pastor right um you yourself uh you are far from retired, but I guess you're technically you're retired. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I had done, you know, I mean, I had Speaking run the about experience orga- and wisdom. Yeah, yeah I, I like massive experience, yeah. but I ran the nurses organization for 32 years. And I thought, you know, um, it's really time that I use kind of my focus to do other things. And so I really, you know, I was very certain what I wanted to do. I, you know, left a wonderful, wonderful position um, with wonderful people, the nurses, to actually try to work to, con- I mean, to work actually as part of this movement to convince Bernie Sanders to run for president. And I've been uh, intricately involved in that, as you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm pushing the envelope on that because honestly, I look around, I mean, Springsteen said this the other day, um, that there's no one that he sees in the Democratic Party who can beat uh, Donald Trump. Right. Now, Bernie Sanders can. I mean, that polls say that. Yeah. Uh, it's all indicative. Um, but, you know, we've got I, I don't think this this isn't about Bernie. This is about, you know, this is personal. This is about my life and my you know life and my kids and, you know, and, and you and everyone. I mean, it's about all of us on this planet. And um, I kind of like the idea of saving the planet. Mm-hmm. To begin with, I mean, yeah. I think this is a good idea right. for human beings to have a planet. But um you know, I mean, right now we're at a tipping point and he's he's got to step up. He's got to step up. And I know he goes back and forth, you know, and I, you know, I know, you know, a lot that goes on. But regardless, we have to let him know heart and soul. We want him there. Yeah, he's got to be. This is I always say heroes aren't made. They're cornered. And he's he is the most cornered. Per- I literally I cannot think of a moment in history when someone wasn't so cornered. The Democrats have been exposed. The, the neocons in the Democratic Party have been exposed for what they are. They know that the working class has lost heart. They don't believe in them. They don't believe them. Mm-hmm. They don't. I mean, you're not going to convince somebody on the line uh, to to uh, vote for an anointed, moneyed candidate from the Democratic Party. They can sniff it. They yeah, see it. Right. They feel it. The inauthenticity. Yeah. And this stuff about, you know, oh, they're running on Bernie's agenda. You know what? It's Bernie's agenda. So therefore, Bernie should run on his own agenda. Right. Right. I mean, and honestly, I don't I think most of them are too shallow to even get what Bernie's agenda is. They're just mimicking the words. They're parroting what he says, trying to, you know, piggyback on his um, fame, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I don't I don't believe it. They're not going to they're not going to save us. <laughs> right. They're not going to. They're not going to save us. And and we're going to be extremely vulnerable if we the the, the Republicans will win again if we don't have a real systemic change in this in this game. Right now, what we have is the Democrats and the Republicans are playing like a sport. You know, it's my basketball. Um, right. It's not a sport. Our lives are on the line. The planet's on the line. Our health is on the line. You know, our our economic system is on the line. We don't have the luxury for this shallow discussion that goes on between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So just like Donald Trump did in some ways, honestly, I guess we're asking Bernie, to step up, step out. I mean, Trump did that against, you know, the will of his party. Right. And he was able to carry that grassroots movement. And as much as I hate to take, give him credit. Well, in some ways he was just, he, was, he watched the Bernie operation. And it was so like, mm, wow. Right. Um, I mean, and, he's effective. We can admit sometimes people that like self-center or they center other people. Someone who's very bad can be effective. And we have to be honest about that, right? Especially because we wanted absolutely. to defeat him. Yeah. We would be naive not exactly, to. Exactly, yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, he knows how to galvanize his base. Yeah, he does. The problem is that part of who's his base should be our base, and yes. they don't have an alternative in our base. Exactly. Right. And so they, yeah. And so that, that, I mean, we need Bernie for about a, you know, a thousand reasons, yeah. if not more. And he's got to step up. And yeah. so I really want people to, you know, to encourage him, you know, through getting other people to, you know, go on organizing for Bernie.com. And, you know, there's a, a Twitter site is, I think it's at um, OFB, that's organizing for Bernie uh, 2020. And, you know, go on, just engage, engage. You, they, Bernie is not about himself. He's about the grassroots and if the grassroots. You know, I mean, if the grassroots corner him, he'll go. That's what I believe. Right. Yeah. So there's a if you you can also go to a move on. Um, there's a presidential poll. If you go to act.moveon.org and you can uh, take place in this membership wide straw poll. That's about 2020 presidential elections. Um, right. And you were saying as you were saying that there's the Twitter handle that is OFB 2020, as you said. Then there's right. the hashtag. Um and what about, yeah, what is this, oh, what is he saying, by the way? I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure you can't reveal a lot of your um, behind the scenes interactions with him, but what can you say about what Sanders is saying about the possibility of running? I don't know. He's saying, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he's saying. I mean, that is really what he's saying yeah. too. But yeah. I say the opposite. He's running. He, you know why? Because he's going, he says, and this is, you know, True by definition, he's going to run if he's the most qualified person right. to beat Donald Trump. Well, he's the most qualified person to beat Donald Trump. Ergo, run, Bernie, yeah, run. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, baby, we're born to run. To quote, uh, born the boss, to run. Yeah, and Springsteen, Springsteen should get on board. I know. I was yeah, surprised he didn't. Well, he didn't get involved in the primary. He pontificated from the sidelines this time. I mean, really. But you know what? Honestly, I don't know. You know, to what effect. He had, you know, certainly didn't carry it for Hillary Clinton when he went on stage with her. But, you know, we've got some, you know, we've got a lot of star power in our campaign, but that star power is like a committed power. And so, you know, as as you know, we were at the People's Summit. I mean, a People's Summit, sorry. Both of them, but yeah, this recently, the the Sanders We were there too, yeah, the Sanders Sanders Institute. And, um, you know, I mean, we've got a lot of star power, but actually it's the people power at that thing, the intelligence the uh, high-level people, thinking people, right. you know, committed people, people like you, Katie. Yeah. Oh, thanks. But, I mean, also among the star power, what's so interesting is, like, look at Danny Glover and Susan Sarandon. Yes. I mean, these are people who have, like, been arrested. They've walked the walk. They've gone down to the south. Um, they're not just people who, who are saying, like, oh, if, if only Trump weren't in office, we'd be brunching right now. Uh, they're exactly. not that great of Hollywood. No, they're not. Yeah. They're not. And John Cusack. And John Cusack, I mean, right. You know, Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he's so in. Um, uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, so they've got that, you know, those people to amplify the message. But but we are the messengers. We yeah. are the messengers, you know, regular people like us who are out there, like us who are listening to your podcast. Oh, um, yeah. Who are, you know, who have good hearts. Yeah. And and they they want change for for their people. And so that's where we are. Yeah. Why is it that I feel like there's like a very, there's a big menschiness quotient, a high menschie factor, um, uh-huh. to use the Yiddish word. Uh, and it, it, it was very moving seeing that being at the Sanders Institute. One of the most moving things was I saw Ada Kalau, who's the um, first female mayor of Barcelona. I saw her, right. Fernando Haddadji, who had, was defeated by the total fascist um, torture advocate, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil and Danny Glover and they all like raised their hand, they held hands and they lifted them in the air um, and they had like their fists in the air it was really emotional right. Um, right. but yeah that was the thing it's like I people it really is a moral call I mean you hear that in every is. issue right it whether is. it's about like about saving the earth and the climate or healthcare for all um, it's really there's a like a real moral foundation so it's deep. Yeah, it's, it's very deep. deep. When uh, we sang Solidarity Forever and, you know, you could look out there and see, yeah. you know, the Carnell West and Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah, Cornell you know. West is there too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just, oh, I mean, you know, it just kind of melts you. It's like, yeah. God, we, we can do this. We can yeah. do this. But we're, but it's going to be a lot of work. I mean, we're going to be up against the nastiness of the uh, Democratic Party trolls. I know that are and the Republican Party trolls. Right. Um, and... 
you know, their their attempts to demoralize good reporting, good reporters, any Bernie supporters. You know, they're they're nasty pieces of work with these campaigns when we get into them. And they can do, you know, they try to do a lot of damage. They try to do reputation damage. And you got to really have a tough skin to get through it. And I think, you know, a lot most of us are veterans at this point in time. So, you know, whatever. But for, for new people coming in, they just have to get their armor up because it's going to be a ride. Right. Yeah. Um, and any other advice that you have as someone who's been in the movement? Yeah, I've got a lot of advice, Katie, and we should just continue talking through the campaign. Okay, great. So this is the first <laughs> installment of uh, yeah. Ask Roseanne. Right, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know All you right, have a lot Katie. of work to do, but this is great. Thank you so much for All giving right. us some of your time. Okay, great. All right. That was Roseanne DeMauro. Now I speak to... Abdul El-Sayed, who ran for governor in Michigan. He is a physician, an activist around public health and the Green New Deal. And he was Detroit's health commissioner from 2015 to 2017. So welcome. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you. I'm uh, excited to be chatting. Yes. Um, Tell us what you're doing here and what you spoke about um, on the panel that you're on on the Green New Deal. So we're in Burlington, Vermont for the Sanders Institute gathering. uh, It's a gathering of uh, folks from in and around the progressive movement and um, I had the privilege of serving on a panel with folks like Naomi Klein and uh, Bill McKibben, um, Matt Nelson, and um, and Stephanie Kelton, uh, and we we're talking about the Green New Deal. And my hope as a former health commissioner uh, in the city of Detroit was to situate the Green New Deal from the perspective of a kid in Detroit. Um, I believe that. Uh, great policy always centers around real people yeah. um, rather than ideals or even uh, abstract trends. And um, and I think when we situate those people, we can understand exactly why this thing matters. And the beautiful thing about the Green New Deal is that it addresses several challenges that a kid, um, a kid in Detroit might be facing. The fact that uh, we have been subsidizing large corporations um, like GM, uh, who just announced that they'll be uh, they'll be shutting down a, a major factory in Detroit and Hamtramck right. that they opened 30 years ago. Um, and we're gonna, I'm going to cut some of that audio from there. Okay. So I'll put that in here, like right here into this Perfect. part. I, I just want to situate this, this locally in Detroit, right? Because they, if you want to understand great policy, great policy does the work of solving problems for real people. Oftentimes when we think about policy, we're, we're often optimizing to an idea. We're optimizing to a trend but not optimizing to real people. And I think if you want to understand the effects of a tree, whether it's a tree of goodwill or a tree of poison, the effects of the tree are going to be most profound at the roots. And I think the root of the various policy ideas that are packed into this Green New Deal, they sit in a community like Detroit. And I want you to imagine if you were a small child, a little girl, let's say you're three years old, and your mom or dad just got laid off because GM shut down a plant at the edge of Detroit and Hamtramck, 1,500 jobs lost, which, by the way, had been built over top of a community, a multi-ethnic community called Pole Town, 30 years ago. They actually had to physically lift five women in a paddy wagon so that the bulldozers could start building at that last minute to build that, that plant. Now, in Detroit, the probability of being hospitalized for asthma is threefold the rest of the state. If you have mild persistent asthma, you're likely to miss at least one school day every two weeks. Why don't you think what that is? And it's not because you got to stay home and play video games. It's because you could not breathe that morning and you had to be rushed to a hospital. And the reason why is because Detroit is the epicenter of most of the biggest carbon emitting plants in the entire state of Michigan. A Marathon Petroleum Refinery probably sits within two miles of that three-year-old girl's home. And that petroleum refinery, they're the biggest single emitter of sulfur dioxide in the entire state. The EPA has ruled them to be in what's called non-attainment. So when we talk about the climate change epidemic, let's think about the roots. And the roots are in those communities where this climate is released and the consequences are babies who can't go to school because they cannot breathe. And then from there, ask yourself about why GM got to build that plant that employed that kid's parent, because they got huge levels of corporate subsidies from the state, from the city, and from the federal government. And then they shut down. And by the way, because they built out of Detroit, they built the entire infrastructure of the state of Michigan around what? The car. 
And so there is no public transit in the, in the city of Detroit. So the high likelihood is that that kid has to get into a car to go even two miles. And you know what? In Detroit, 40% of Detroiters don't have a car. The cost of auto insurance is five-fold the state average. So when we talk about a Green New Deal, the reason that this is so resonant is because it speaks to the experience of real people. It speaks to the fact that what is driving climate change is exactly that output from those plants that is poisoning those kids. It speaks to the fact that we need to rebuild an infrastructure that is clean around the experience of people who cannot get from place to place because we built our infrastructure all wrong in the post-World War II era. And it speaks to the fact that right now this corporate subsidized system of job creation has failed low-income people for the most part, either because they're underemployed or because those businesses realize that because of, because of globalization, those, those companies are going to up and leave, and you cannot, you cannot rely on those jobs. So that Green New Deal sits at the lived experience of that kid. And the fact of the matter is, you don't have to be in Detroit to see why this matters. Because if good policy is about situating about real people, good politics is about empowering people to see themselves in those shoes. And so when you talk to folks in Traverse City, they know about the Line 5 oil pipeline that sits in the Straits of Mackinac between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, that if it burst, would burst into 10% of the world's fresh water. They know about that. And every time there's a scare because an anchor dropped too close, they know what that would look like in their homes. They're not that kid in Detroit. They're folks who we'd call suburban or rural. When you talk to folks about PFAS in our water, or more importantly, the Flint water crisis, which is a crisis of infrastructure, which has created the poisoning, mass poisoning of children, who, by the way, happen to be low income and disproportionately black. And so I think when, when we talk about this issue, it's really important to ask ourselves when we validate policy and politics, does it actually situate a real person? And is that the person suffering? And do, does the message actually pull people into that frame so that they can see the world from somebody who suffered? And that's the reason I think this Green New Deal has been so effective. Our campaign ran on part of it. I'm really proud that um, one of the key architects of the policy is my former policy director, Rihanna Gunwright. You'll hear that name many, many times in the future. Incredible, young African-American woman who is, I think, going to be a huge policy engine for a progressive future. But that's being erected out of a set of ideas that we actually beta tested on the campaign. Because when you sat down and you talked to suburban folks and you said, hey, look, you have to actually sit in your car 30 minutes to get to work. Do you like doing that? Most of them said no. And when you asked them about what the consequences probably were for the environment, they all understood. And they understood that the infrastructure that we had built around this entire way of life, that that infrastructure was crumbling and we had not invested in rebuilding it. Instead, instead we were investing in giving corporate subsidies to corporations like GM so that they could up and move when they realized that it was a better bet for them to invest in China. And so I think it's really important for us to always focus our message around a policy that's focused on the people we want to serve. I think that we have an opportunity in uh, our politics right now to bring a level of empathy and perspective of having listened to everyone and understood. Sorry, that was Justin Bieber speaking of empathy with his song, Is It Too Late Now to Say Sorry? Uh, it's an alarm, which I, which I also asked for. Uh, if I can say sorry for that. No worries. Um, okay. Empathy, you were saying? Yeah. I, was a, I, I lived in Florida for some time, and uh, five days after my little brother was born, Hurricane Andrew hit. And, um, and I remember walking out of my house, and it looked like a war had happened overnight. Uh, I was eight years old, and I didn't quite appreciate how serious it was until um, I saw my dad... Um, afraid. And, you know, when you're eight, your dad is Superman, right? Um, and Superman was afraid. Um, and Superman doesn't get afraid. He puts his, ca his cape on and he goes and fights the fight, right? Um, but Superman was very afraid. Um, and uh, my five-day-old brother thankfully slept through the night. For me, the moments that were most meaningful in communicating to folks who didn't already have an ideological preset around this issue was about asking them to put themselves in the shoes of somebody who's had their life turned upside down. And then connecting it to a moment or a crisis that's just around the way. So for folks in communities across Michigan, the Flint water crisis was that. 
It was saying, imagine you had been brushing your kid's teeth and bathing your child in water that was leaded and asking yourself every single day about whether or not the consequences of that will hurt your kid's life potential. Imagine you're one of the folks who's got PFAS in your water and all of a sudden every year you've got to go to a doctor and get a chest x-ray because it might just be that you had cancer. Imagine being that person who lives on the coast or even close to the coast when line five splits open and poisons the Great Lakes water. That's not that far away. And those are the feelings it would feel like. For me, it was being able to connect folks to that experience and having them even walk for a moment through the trauma that exists for people who've gone through that every single day, right? And, um, and when you get people close to that and you ask them to, to see the humanity in those people who are suffering that, they're not just the people on CNN running away from the Paradise Fire, they, they are you, they are your parents, they are your sisters and your brothers, they are your kids. Um, those are the moments where it happens for them. And once it happens for them, that's empathy, right? Once that empathy comes into the context, into the setting, then this is not a question about abstract ideas. Because again, great policy is about actually situating on people, and great politics is about getting people to see themselves in those people. Dude, you're good at this. You gotta run for some more stuff. And then, oh, uh, I think empathy is really important. Yeah, and, and I, yeah. when we frame our, our politics around empathy, I think it takes us beyond a lot of the outrage um, of this moment. And the you know, fact is, is that outrage has a shelf life. Um, mm. we, we allow a certain individual to dominate our public conversation because we respond to everything crazy he says. Um, and I think two years on, we have to get past that. Right. And we have to start asking, how do we be servants to the people who get left behind in, um, in a lot of his policy? That should be the point. Rather than trying to get angry at him uh, for, um, for going after and, uh, and demonizing and hurting people, let's be the folks who help them right. and lift their voices. And then, yes, of course, there has to be some opposition. Um, but, but that should be framed around protecting Right. rather than attacking and I, agree, yeah. I just think that makes us so much more um comprehensive right. and thoughtful and big in our message yeah um yeah i mean I, I think that responding to tweets for instance it's like i get that it's tempting but it doesn't really solve anything also i always think that a lot of people walk into his trap because this is a guy who thrives off of being maligned and attacked by the you know people regardless of where, where they're coming from he can just dismiss them as the media the establishment you know the whatever and so the liberals and which is why I think it's a useless waste of time honestly when we talk about what he says about women it's disgusting but like the people who voted for him or stayed at home don't care yep. enough to either leave or to vote against him and I don't mean the judgmental way of the people who like it's just a well just we have to remember as people who are heavily engaged in politics not everybody is right. and um they're the people we want to inspire yeah and i think right now we've been playing this sort of call out game look how evil oh he is God. look yeah. how terrible right. he is and it's easy because we fall into his trap of being these uh attackers right and um and it draws a false equivalency but a false equivalency right. he points to yeah and i think we've got to be able to stand up on our own and say my job as a public servant or aspiring public servant uh, or somebody in the, in the, in the media space um, is to look out for um, and empower uh, a group of people who tend to get marginalized and forgotten. And um, that's a different conversation. And it, it starts with a frame on empathy and a perspective on, um, on always centering ourselves around the people whose voices don't get heard. Right. So... Um what are you doing now? Can you talk about your evolution? You were a Rhodes Scholar, you went to med school, you were going to practice medicine, and yeah. then what happened? So I wanted to be a surgeon, um, and I wanted to work in Sub-Saharan Africa where there are not many surgeons. And I want to do that because growing up, um, my family is, uh, is ethnically Egyptian. I would spend a lot of my summers with my grandmother, who is the smartest person I've ever met, but who never got to go to school. Um, and she would always remind me. She said, never look down on any of your cousins who, who never had the opportunities I had. Uh, but remember, you owe a lot more uh, because of the circumstances in which you grow up. And then my stepmom, who raised me, is a daughter of the American Revolution. And so I used to uh, live between right. these very different sort of American experiences. Yeah. And, um, and I, I thought I wanted to do something about health inequalities that I would see and came to appreciate that the inequalities that I had watched 
um, happen on that eight-hour journey between here and in Egypt or here in any country in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I could drive 30 minutes from where I grew up into a neighborhood in Detroit and, and, and travel the same 10-year life expectancy mm. gap. So I really wanted to solve health inequalities at home. And then as a training physician came to appreciate that the ability to actually do that within the system was very limited. Um, and so I decided not to do a residency. Um, I also did a PhD in public health at Oxford um, during my Rhodes Scholarship. And so turned my attention to public health research. And I thought, um, as a public health researcher, I could elucidate policies that would address health inequities and came to appreciate that academia is its own system yeah. and um, sometimes very divorced from the problems on the ground. And so left academia when I got the opportunity to um, rebuild Detroit's health department that had been shut down when the city was facing bankruptcy and emergency management and um, took on the job of, of, of rebuilding this department um, basically from the ground up. I mean, when I started, we had five city employees and 85 contractors in the back of the building where people pay parking tickets um, and ultimately left it with 220 uh, employees overall across uh, four different campuses, having uh, worked to provide every child a free pair of glasses, stood up to some of the biggest polluters uh, in the state of Michigan and, 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 and made sure our kids weren't drinking leaded water in their schools. But, but also realized um, the hard truth of how politicians make decisions about what even matters and was working for a mayor who shuts off water on 17,000 homes in the city of Detroit every year. Uh, and, you know, realizing that a lot of the programs the city was, was running weren't in the best interest of the public's health. Um, watched Flint happen just 50 miles north uh, in the city where my grandmother grew up. Uh, and, um, and, then, uh, and then watched, watched the current president get elected. Um, and I had to ask myself what my responsibilities were, and, and that's when I decided to run for office. Uh, you know, ran a strong campaign, unfortunately split votes with a, you know, a guy who spent $11 million of his own money um, running on my message, um, you know, who had taken giddy selfies with Marco Rubio. But, um, uh, you know, it is what it is, and uh, helped to move the conversation to the left. And, um, and now thinking a lot about um, what's next and working on a book, which I'm really excited about. And... Uh, and trying to really frame the progressive movement around um, around a, a politics of empathy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, can we talk a little bit about what happened with the election? I mean, what and how, what the takeaway is from that and how, I mean, oh. th things like that can be prevented? Yeah, well, look, you know, rich people who want power um, often use their money for power. And there was um, no difference here. This is a guy who saw that the progressive message was ascendant and so decided to call himself progressive despite having uh, you know, maxed out to John McCain, um, despite having taken uh, selfies with Marco Rubio in Iowa. I mean, um, I've taken selfies to people like that, but very ironically. Yeah. And I don't donate to McCain. This, this guy was really, yeah, um, yeah, right. it was, was really excited about right, a selfie. Right, yeah. uh, voted for Rick Santorum in the yeah. 2012 uh, primary. So, um, you know, ran on a message that wasn't his, but had $11 million to spend, bought a right. Super Bowl ad and uh, you know, outspend us more than two to one, end up spending $53 a vote. Um, but it split, it split votes. Um, the, the, uh, the more centrist Democrat who ended up winning and ultimately winning the election, mm -hmm. you know, we endorsed her right. uh, after the primary, but, um, you know, she took 50% of the vote and you can imagine if it was just she and I, it would have been a different race right. and, uh, came up against the hard truths of, of how the democratic machine can work, um, to support their favorites. Uh, you know, they, they planted a story about, um, an eligibility question that ultimately was nothing. Uh, but in what was four that? Months, which, which, I, I went to medical school in New York and voted for uh, Barack Obama in New York in 2012. And you can have multiple uh, voter registrations. You just can't exercise them. Right. And their argument was that by definition, I should have lost my Michigan voter registration, which is just not legally true. Right. Um, but we're able to get a number of lawyers from within that, that machine to uh, attest to this to the press and so five anonymous lawyers and um oh, that's really right that's and, great uh, when they're all anonymous you yeah. know and um and a, a a small news outlet decided that um, i might not be eligible mm -hmm. and so pushed the story um and for four months before the bureau of elections ruled that i was um you know i had to work against the question of whether or not i was even eligible right. for the job that i was i was um i was running for right. and uh, and that did some some pretty serious damage to us. But look, I, at the end of the day, it is what it is. I'm right. not I'm not bitter about these things. I, I just believe that. Um, well, it's good, but there are things that are important to note, right? Because so we understand how the media works, how narratives work, and how right. we need to push back against them. Um, and money and politics and all that. Yeah, and then there was a, a um, there was a discussion about whether you were like ethnically appropriate. 
yeah. right? Well, which which came from people who call themselves progressive. Yeah, v- very rarely um, would anybody tell me I can't vote for you because you're Muslim. But right. they would say we worry whether or not you can win in the general because you're right. Muslim, so we can't vote for you. Right. And um, you know, second order racism is still racism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, and when you use somebody else's racism right. as a shield uh, around your own bias, it's still racism. Um, but you know, again, right? Like I, I just. At some point, it doesn't. That, that's not the point to me. The point to me is that uh, we've got a responsibility to fight on our right. values, and um, I think we moved the conversation tremendously. I'll be back at it someday. Yeah. Um, and you know, I knew what it what it might be like to run with a name like Abdul El Sayed. Right. Uh, and um, and you know, well, we as also a, as elected a, a president named. That's true. Barack Hussein that's Obama, right? right? And yeah. so you know, uh, I think. There's always uh, a potential for um, for movement, and that's the thing this country's about, right? We're, we've always been about calling ourselves to our highest truth, and um, I hope that I contributed to that, and uh, certainly contributed to the debate in, in Michigan about what progressive politics and policy could look like, um, you know, and uh, and learned a lot in the process, and and also really showed that, you know, with a name like Abdul El Sayed and uh, being unapologetically Muslim. Uh, American, I could win 340,000 votes. And and so we're just getting started. Yeah. And without the backing of all the establishment and the media and, you know, and of course, I mean, we saw something kind of gross happen with Keith Ellison. Um, And speaking of of Flint and Obama, did you see the Michael Moore documentary? I did. Um, I was, okay, I consider myself a fairly informed critic of Obama from the left, obviously. I had no idea about that when he went to Flint. Yeah. And like, that was really... um, heartbreaking and I guess shouldn't have been surprising but was kind of surprising how do you think the failure of the Democrats has um, and I know you're more on the positive and empathetic but just from from a cynic who who is empathy driven but thinks that some things need to be addressed how do you think like what are the steps or can you connect the dots between how when the Democrats fail someone like Trump is enabled yeah make no mistake I um, I have my frustrations with our politics and I'm not afraid to air, to air them. Uh, and my criticisms come from a responsibility toward the people that we all collectively ought to serve right. and our failure to often do that. Um, look, when, when, when Democrats buy into an ideology that says that we all ought to focus on the well-being of corporations rather than the well-being of real people, when we forget what suffering looks like, then we make mistakes. And it's easy for folks uh, who aren't reading op-eds and who aren't watching the news to look and say, well, you're all the same because all of you have failed. Right. That was Abdul Al-Sayed. Now I speak to Maria Swart, National Director of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA. Hello, welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Katie Halper. I'm really excited to be interviewing Maria Swart, who is the National Director of the Democratic Socialists of America. You may know them as DSA. Maria, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to us. Um, And I just want to put it out there, everyone. Her name is pronounced Swart. (laughs) It is spelled with a V, but that's apparently silent in the Danish um, from which it comes. So tell us about how you became involved in the DSA. So I actually came out of DSA's campus wing. I was a national uh, co-chair of the Young Democratic Socialists of America. I became a socialist when I was a college student, and I I was a feminist activist, and I saw an event about socialist feminism, which resonated with me because I felt that the mainstream feminist movement didn't speak to the experience of my mother and my grandmothers. So um, I had an epiphany at this event about socialist feminism. I realized capitalism was a, uh, a system, and I had a language to explain all this unfairness that I had seen in the world. So before that, um, did you identify as a feminist? Did you feel like you were compatible with some elements of feminism? What was your relationship to feminism? Yeah, so that? growing up, my parents were um, liberal activists, and um, I'm biracial, and my father was in a union. Much of my extended family were in a union. So the idea of collective action was not foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the reflection of that was becoming a feminist activist. And uh, certainly many things about feminism resonated, but I became more and more dissatisfied as I, again, as I realized that it was a, it was a limited form of feminism. I didn't understand why right. until later. So what is it about socialism that you find um, is makes feminism 
the fuller feminism that you identify with and that represents more women and people? Mm -hmm. So women are half the population, and yet the mainstream feminist movement really reflects the interests of white, middle class, and upper class uh, women, among you know other characteristics. Right. And uh, it's, it's just a limited understanding. Um, further, being a socialist feminist, uh, you understand that there are collective solutions to collective problems. And individual solutions will not work because you just have all this pressure on you as an individual and you're, in, you're inside a system that uh, tries to tell you that you have an individual solution, but it's inherently impossible to actually solve your problem. So it's both understanding that we're in a system, understanding the interests of working class women are different than uh, upper class women, and also realizing the solution is only collective action. So it's not in... Um Hillary Clinton's pantsuits. It's more in, um, like, the, in other words, would you, which is more important? Here's a quiz. Hillary Clinton's pantsuits or the women of Honduras and Libya? Who, right. Right? Okay. It's one right. of the, so I get it now. I Not going to go with the pantsuit. Not going to go with the pantsuit, right. <laughs> um, how do you see identity politics weaponized against the left and socialism mm. in general? Well, you look at Bernie Sanders, um, the most popular politician yeah. in the country. And yet, people that support Bernie are called Bernie bros. Right. Um, you look at DSA, uh, I am a Latina. Uh, I'm leading the organization. And there are many women of color in leadership. And yet, we are characterized as a bunch right. of Bernie bros. Right. I reappropriated so the term, by the way. Yes. I identify as a feminist Bernie bro. That's great. That's yeah. great. I, I just that a whole narrative um, may be rooted in some critiques that are valid, but it is used, weaponized, right. to completely sweep everything else. Uh, away, all of the economic analysis away. So it, it really erases the wor my work and other women and people of color uh, in leadership. So right. we constantly have to push back against that. Right. And the irony, of course, is that the things that the people who weaponize identity politics against the left claim to care about is erasure. Um, and what they're doing, of course, is erasing the very people of color and women who are to the left of. Mm -hmm. Whatever, anything to avoid C. a class analysis. Right. Anything to avoid a class analysis. So how, what can we do to push back on that? Well, it's really important to point out you can't understand class without understanding gender and race and all of these things and vice versa. So, you know, how can you possibly understand, for example, the, the life experience of my grandmother, who was an undocumented Mexican immigrant, without understanding you know, the much bigger picture. Uh, the whole systems of our society, whether it's white supremacy or xenophobia or capitalism, they all intersect. And uh, we need to talk about the complexity of that reality all the time. Uh, and we have to push back against lean-in feminism, you know, mainstream feminism, uh, all the time. It's yeah. just, it's a constant struggle. And what do you think the relationship between, let's say, Bernie Sanders and DSA and the left at large is? Well, during his campaign, which which we will forever owe him a debt of gratitude, we as in the collect, all of us, uh, he reintroduced democratic socialism to uh, mainstream American political discourse. He opened the door to um, millions of people finding out about democratic socialism, realizing their feeling the world was not fair was actually, there was a reason for that. They were not imagining things. So... In his campaign, he talked about how we needed a uh, mass, politically aware, grassroots organized movement. And so what we think of ourselves in as D in DSA is the democratic socialist part of that movement and really trying to um, not just continue spreading these ideas, but also giving people a place where they can go and organize collectively around these ideas and continue spreading them. But also, you know, really building institutions and communities because one of the things that um, we don't see enough of in our society today are institutions rooted in communities and capitalism really pulls us apart from each other. It undermines community institutions and our social ties. And we see our chapters as one place to not only go into a community, but through that community have the strength to fight and be building collective struggle. I find myself personally, I'm always protecting, I'm just going to be honest, Sanders, because there's so many disingenuous attacks against mm -hmm. him by people who are fine with um, the neoliberal and often overtly racist and sexist either statements or positions of the people they defend. Look at what Hillary said the other day about how Europe needs to, um, you know, curb Im immigration. Mm -hmm. And those same people celebrate her as a woke, um, you know, yes mm -hmm. queen. And Sanders is the, is the alleged bigot. So I'm always defending him. But then, like, from a position of support, what do you think Sanders needs to do to make it clearer 
that race, gender, and class are, are connected and that his policies are about racial justice and about gender justice. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have any tips, like friendly tips? Friendly tips. I think Bernie definitely has learned how to communicate with so many people in this country that are deliberately ignored by the ruling class. His policies are really good policies. Right. There's a reason he's the most popular politician in the country. What I think you and I agree on is that his policies are the anti-racist, the anti-sexist, mm -hmm. the um, progressive policies. But yes, sometimes the translate the translating of yep. that is a challenge, right? Yep. And so, especially like given how much the media pounces on him, and someone said the other day, it's it's almost a a, a, um, a miracle how how few mistakes he makes, given that right. everyone is always covering him. In order to defend himself, he has to become more comfortable with that, and and the only way to do that is to talk with folks that are on the front lines of those struggles, right? And make it more explicit, mm -hmm. right? So, any other words of advice for for the movement, for DSA, for feminism, for people out there watching this? I'd say, you know, I think that most of us have the right instincts, which is in this moment, we really need to be building a mass movement, whether that's building our unions, building community organizations. Um, we can't rely on the courts to defend us. Uh, we haven't for a very long time, but it's particularly bad now. Uh, we can't rely on Congress to save us. Uh, we can't rely on legalistic solutions. We can't rely on the Democratic Party. So we need to be organizing in ways where we can really interrupt the way society functions. That's our only source of power right now. Um, the Democrats are going to pursue these legalistic uh, avenues talking about um, corruption. And we all know that Trump is super corrupt, right. but that's not going to inspire a mass movement. Yeah, exactly. They won by running on material issues, right. things like Medicare for all, and they need to continue fighting. I mean, Democrats need to pass a bunch of things in the House and then send them to the Senate for the Republicans to vote against. And meanwhile, all of us need to be organizing in the streets. So what is, will the official role be of the DSA? How do you manage, because you guys have kind of a parallel um, mm -hmm structure, right? You have, you work with campaigns, you work outside of campaigns. So what would it be with Sanders if and when, if he runs? So we um, are a very bottom-up organization and our members decide what we're going to do in 2019 and 2020. So our members will have an organization-wide conversation about what that should look like. And depending on what happens and um, current events, the members will decide. It's, um, it's a truly democratic organization, which is wonderful because we can actually respond to current events and develop people's critical thinking skills, and because we're run by members and we're funded by members, members really decide the direction and therefore um, are very invested in carrying it out. Great. Well, um, I, I heard Bernie talking with Paul um, from The Real News. He said something had chutzpah, which is Yiddish for like nerviness. And so um, there's Shonda, which is a shame. And I would say you guys are a mitzvah, a good <laughs> deed for uh, the world and for the left um, and for all the um, disenfranchised people. So thank you so well, much, Maria. Thank you for that. And to hear more of my interview with Maria Swart, please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You can find me on Twitter at Katie Halps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. You can find my co-host Gabe on Twitter at Gabe underscore Pacheco. You can use the hashtag Katie Halp Show. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. You can find the Katie Halper Show on iTunes where you can rate and review us. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Facebook. See you next week. Thank you.